How many people have a vivid memory of the dumbest thing you've ever said? How many, I can't see you at your location, but you can see each other. This, we're a confessing community. We're together in our vulnerability. How many people have a vivid memory of the dumbest thing you ever said? Maybe you're like me. Uh, there, there's a verse in the Bible that says, you multiply the words and you multiply the sin. Uh, I think they're going to put that on my tombstone, actually. I, I, I can't remember the dumbest thing. I don't know. I remember lots of dumb things that I've said, but I don't know how to categorize something as the dumbest thing I've ever said. But I do remember being on the phone one day with a Honda. I was talking to Honda because my van was broken. On the inside, in the cabin, the console had been pulled apart. Uh, the person who pulled it apart shall remain Nameless, but I pulled this console apart, and now it was in pieces on the floor, and something had gotten damaged in the midst. So I called Honda and said, listen, I need you to fix my van, because uh, I need a part. And I brought it in, and they looked, and they said, okay, well, we need to order the part. We'll call you in a week. Well, two weeks later, I called them and said, hey, how's it going with my part? They said, oh, yeah, the part. we got to find that one. Okay, okay, we'll call you in a week. And two weeks later, I called them and said, hey, just wondering whether you had found the part because my van is kind of torn apart on the inside. And they said, yeah, we're looking for it. We'll call you in a week. And two weeks later, I called them and I said, hey, any update on the, on the missing part? That Well, it's on, it's on back order. We're talking to Alabama. We'll call you in a week. And this went on and on and on for literally 10 months. The, the console of my van was pulled apart. I was waiting for a part for 10 months. And I don't, I don't remember once in those 10 months Honda ever calling me to say, hey, this is the deal with your part. Every single time, as far as I recall, I called them to say, hey, do you have any update on the part that has now been seven and a half months since we talked about you getting me one? And, and it was just always, it's just kind of one delay after the other and one thing after the other. Finally, I called one day and I said, hey, any update on the part? It's 10 months later. It said, yeah, we got it. I said, fantastic, I'll bring my van in and you can, you can put it in. And they said, uh, yeah, it's going to cost you like $700. Oh, and by the way, the part doesn't match. It's different color. We couldn't find your color, so we just got you gray. I hope that's fine. That was like the last straw for me. I said, listen, I, I need to talk to your manager. And they put the service manager on the phone and I, about as much as I'm capable of, I just let him have it. I mean, I was trying to be polite and respectful. I was trying to be Christian about it, but it had been 10 months of nobody ever contacting me about just waiting for this part of them not having answers. And then when I finally get it, they tell me it's going to be almost $1,000 and it's the wrong color. And I just, I just lost it. I could not contain myself anymore. And I let this guy know just what lousy customer service I had received from Honda at that time. And, uh, and he said to me, you know, I'm really sorry that was your experience. Is there anything that I can do? And I said, well, I tell you what, I said, I'm not paying a penny to have this part installed. You're going to do that on your dime, and you could give me oil changes for a year. And he says, I can't do that. And I said, you can do that. You just won't do that. But I'm, I'm satisfied, I guess, if you'll just install the part for free, and you cover the cost, because this thing has been a nightmare, and I'm just not impressed. And he says, I totally understand, and we will pay to cover the cost. Is there anything else? And I said, no. I said, that's... That's it. That's the only reason why I want to talk to you. And then there was this pause on the phone. And he says to me, by the way, while I have you on the phone, uh, my wife and I have been attending Southridge for the last couple of months, and we really love your preaching. I was like, oh, my gosh. 
And now I'm having this conversation. Oh, how, well, how long have you been coming? And oh, that's really kind of you to say. And I'm glad that you're... There has never been a worse moment in my entire life. I hung up the phone. Tom Lowen, whose office was next to mine, was laughing at me. And he said to me, he said, you're never going to do that again. And I said, I will never, ever do that again. I will never call somebody with a customer service complaint ever again in my life. It's just not worth it. Because just open mouth and insert foot, like it was just a horrible experience. That's now emblazoned, it's now like branded on my soul because words are powerful things. Whether words that we speak to other people or words that other people speak to us or over us or at us, words are powerful things. In fact, a poet by the name of Maya Angelou has said, someday we'll be able to measure the power of words. But she says, I think words are things. And they get on the walls and they get in your wallpaper and they get in your rugs and in your upholstery and in your clothes and finally into you. Words have power. They have power to shape and transform people's lives. They have power to build and to scar people's souls. They have the power to change people's humanities. And, it, and because of that, it doesn't surprise me for a minute that in a series called For or Against, where we're talking about what it looks like to either be for or against Jesus, what the indicators are, what the, what the conditions are, what it looks like for somebody to be for or against Jesus, that the issue of words emerges in Matthew chapter 12. The story we're going to look at starts in verse 22. It says this, And they brought him, Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. They brought to Jesus a, a man whose life was under the control or under the influence. His life was indwelt by a demonic darkness, by the force of evil that was now dominating his life. This man's life was so in the control of evil that it was actually beginning to destroy him physically. Um, it says in the text, it sounds almost like he had three problems. He was demon-possessed, he was blind and mute. That's not the condition. He was battling with the forces of darkness, with demonic oppression in his life, and the, the demonic oppression had made him both blind and, the Greek word actually means, a deaf-mute. This was a blind, deaf-mute. Think about that for a minute. A man who had been cut off, was lived in utter isolation, had really no effective way of communicating with the world around him. His only and constant companion was the darkness of the evil that raged in chaos in his soul. They brought this man to Jesus and it says in simplicity without fanfare or elaboration that Jesus healed him. I like to think that the the simplicity of the statement matched the simplicity that it was for Jesus to perform the healing. Jesus just, without effort or sweat or blood or tears, just sort of cast the demon out and the man was restored to wholeness. Now there was a crowd standing around who was watching all of this happen. And there were, in the crowd there were two reactions to Jesus. In verse 23 it says, And all the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Now you have to know, the, the, the phrase son of David is a, another title for Messiah. Is this the Savior? The Jews at the time believed that God was going to send a human king uh, to rule over the Jews, to defeat the powers and the forces of darkness and evil in the world. 
And by doing so, usher in a global era of peace and justice and abundance and harmony all over the world. And all the nations, the the Jewish nation would become the, the superpower of the world. And all the nations would come to worship the God of Israel through the human king. And that king they called the son of David. And and so this crowd sees Jesus win this effortless victory over the power of darkness and evil in this demon-possessed man who was blind and mute and deaf. And they think, man, is it possible that this person who has the power to overcome the, the forces of evil and darkness in the world, is it possible that this is the son of David, that this is the one we've been waiting for? It's, it's actually a little more skeptical than that. They, the question's more like, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? There's some doubt and uncertainty, but there's openness, there's intrigue, there's curiosity. Maybe you can even say there's hope. Well, the other reaction comes from the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of Israel in the day. And it says, but when the Pharisees heard that, could this be the son of David? They said, it's only by Beelzebul that the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons. Beelzebul is just another name for Satan, for the devil. They, they said, well, it's, it's by the devil that he drives out demons. It's, it's not, that's not God at work in this person. That's, that's Satan. That's darkness. He is using the dark arts. He's using black magic to heal this man. It's kind of the opposite response to the rest of the crowd. While they were uncertain and doubtful, the, the Pharisees are certain and clear, convinced. While they are open and hopeful, the Pharisees are closed. Prejudice. They're so prejudiced against Jesus because of stories like the one we heard last week. They're so prejudiced against Jesus, their mind is absolutely closed and made up. There's, there is no possible way that this person could be the son of David that we're waiting for. This, this guy, this guy, that's not God at work. That's black magic that you're watching. That's all that is. Their, their, their response is flippant and arrogant and dismissive. That guy, not him. Not him. Jesus, in the text, he responds to their criticism. We're not going to look at that part of the text. In fact, I'll, uh, I'll do a bonus footage video. We'll post it to the website this week um, where we look at those verses just briefly. But, but uh, Jesus defends himself against that accusation that he's actually using black magic to cure this demoniac of their demonic oppression and so on. But when he's done his sort of explanation or his defense... He says this in verse 30. He says, you know, looking squarely at the Pharisees, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. That language of gathering and scattering, that comes out of the Old Testament, out of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34. Uh, You can look it up in your Bibles later. But in Ezekiel 34, the prophet Ezekiel is talking about the different kinds of leadership that Israel has experienced. Good leadership and bad leadership. Leadership that helps Israel become everything God wanted it to be in Israel and leadership that kind of unravels it. And, and, and Ezekiel talks about all this through the metaphor of shepherd and sheep. And he says, you know, there are some shepherds who are just selfish. 
And all they do is they take from the sheep. They take milk, they take meat, they take wool, they take whatever they can get from the sheep, but they're not actually interested in caring for the sheep. They don't uh, strengthen the weak. They don't bandage the injured. They don't heal the sick. They don't rescue the strays. They don't search for the lost. They're not interested in caring for the sheep. They're just interested in taking from the sheep. And that kind of leadership results, Ezekiel says, in the scattering of the flock. Then in Ezekiel, God says, because that's the kind of shepherding Israel has had, God says, I'm going to show up and I'm going to shepherd Israel myself. And I am going to gather them together and I am going to care for them and I am going to tend them and I'm going to heal them and I'm going to restore them. I'm going to strengthen them and I'm going to nurture them and I'm going to love them and I'm going to pet them and name them George. No, they, Jesus, God says, I'm going to do this myself. And he says, when, when I come in, when I step in, when I when I begin to shepherd the flock, I will gather them together to myself. Jesus, in response to the Pharisees' response, Jesus looks at them and says, Jesus, who in another passage calls himself the good shepherd, the one that God is using to do this gathering, he says, listen, Anybody who's not working with me to gather the flock, anyone who's not aligning their life with my purposes to love and tend and care for the sheep, to bring peace and justice and abundance and harmony into the world, anyone whose purposes are not aligned with mine, who are gathering the flock, they, they are scattering. If you're not for me, you're against me. There is no in-between. There's no neutrality. There's no middle ground. There's no innocent bystander. Jesus says, you're either for me or you're against me. You're either part of the solution or you're a part of the problem. This whole world is a cosmic battlefield being, where, where the battle's being fought between good and evil, between God and the enemy, and Jesus is leading the charge against evil on the side of God's armies, and Jesus says, you are either fighting shoulder to shoulder alongside of me, or you are fighting for the enemy against me. He says, there is no middle ground you are for or against. And then he says this. This is his indictment of the Pharisees. He says, uh, and so I tell you, Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, against Jesus, will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Jesus says, you know how you revealed to me that you're actually against me is by the way you spoke about what the Holy Spirit did in this man's life. That's how I know. Your words gave you away that you're not for me or against me. He says, because um, people can speak against me, Jesus says. You speak against me. There's ambiguity about Jesus, right? There's, uh, people would be forgiven for not immediately seeing that Jesus is divine, for not immediately believing that he's the Messiah sent from God, for not immediately buying into the story that he did miracles and died and was raised from the dead. There's this ambiguity about Jesus. And Jesus says, you could be forgiven for not totally getting who I am. But you start to speak against what the Holy Spirit does in people's life. You see the Holy Spirit set somebody free from the forces of darkness and, and bring that person to healing and restoration, restore that person into community. You see the Holy Spirit utterly transform a person's life. And you look at that and say, well, that's just the devil. 
That's, that's black magic. That's all that is. That's not God. That's the enemy. You, if you're at the point where you're so closed to seeing God's activity in somebody else's life that you're willing to brush it aside and assign it to the devil, well, that is a heart that is closed and locked and impenetrable by the redemptive forces of God, which, by the way, I think ought to make us a little more cautious in our opinions about what God is doing in other people's lives. But Jesus says, that's who you are. You are closed and impenetrable to the saving love of God in your life. And what gave you away were your words, was your blasphemy, was the way you responded. And it causes Jesus to reflect on the power of words. He says this, verse 33, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers to the Pharisees. How can you who are evil say anything good? And this is the sentence. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good person brings good things out of the good stored up in them. And an evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in them. Jesus says what your words reveal is what you are holding in your heart. Your words put on display for all to see and to hear what's actually happening in your heart. He says it's like a tree. You could tell how healthy a, a tree is by looking at the fruit, right? I have a, a hibiscus tree. I don't have a fruit tree, but I have a hibiscus tree. I've had it for 15 years. Jeff's dad gave it to me a long time ago. And uh, hibiscus, if you don't know, if you don't have one, a uh, hibiscus tree is, they just have these beautiful blooms, these big, beautiful pink flowers. I don't know if they're all pink. My flowers are pink. They're these beautiful pink flowers on the hibiscus tree. When it's healthy, when it's vibrant, it, it produces these blooms. I think in the 15 years I've had it, I've got it to bloom a handful of times. Uh, this winter, we brought it inside. Uh, you need to. We brought it inside, and we worked really hard at it. We kept it in front of the only window in our house that gets any significant sunlight. We have a big shade canopy and so on. Um, but this window gets some sunlight, and we were diligent with the soil, and we fertilized, and we watered as it was supposed to. And this winter, inside, we got it to bloom twice. We were really proud of ourselves. Uh, about 10 years ago, maybe 12, Krista's uncle and aunt were over, and they they repotted the tree. They put it out of a smaller pot and put it in a bigger pot and they changed all the earth and they fertilized and they watered and then they took it outside. In the place where I was living at the time, there was a spot on the deck that got hours and hours of sunlight. And that summer, that tree bloomed 32 times. Never seen anything like it out of that tree since then. But the point is, you know how the tree is doing by just looking at what it produces. And Jesus says it's exactly the same with human being. The words that we speak in themselves are significant, but, but beyond the significance of the words themselves, the words we speak are an indicator of what's happening in our heart, of what's stored up inside of us. That word stored up in Greek is the word thesaurus. Um, and language lovers will agree with me that it is an apt defined word that's the, the word thesaurus means where the valuable things are and what are more valuable than words right that it's where the valuable things are a thesaurus 
is your safe deposit box. It's your fire box. It's your hope chest. It's in my daughter's room. There is a bin that is filled with junk that that she calls her treasures. They're her treasures. She picks up bottle caps and stickers off the ground. And she picks up, you know, cool looking rocks and seashells. And she, she has her favorite toys and, and, you know, uh, discarded trinkets and like anything she wants to keep, she keeps in her treasure box. And Jesus says, your heart is like your treasure box. Your heart, your soul is where you store everything you value. Your soul is where your values are. And the words you speak are simply the outward verbal manifestation of the values that you hold in your soul to the point where someone can hear the words that you speak and know exactly what kind of person you are. Whether good or bad, your words are a true and accurate representation of what resides in your soul so that people can truly know the kind of person you are, whether you are for or against Christ, just by listening to the way that you speak. Paul picks up on this. St. Paul, in the, in the book of Ephesians, it says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The word unhelpful is the same word Jesus uses. It's translated bad in Matthew. It's unhelp, unwholesome in Ephesians. The Greek word is sarpos, and it literally means of such poor quality so as to have no value. That's what it means. Of such poor quality so as to have no value. Uh, when I was working on a farm as a kid, I started working on farms when I was nine years old, and part of what we did was we sorted fruit. And the sarpas fruit of such poor quality that had no value, that's what we call discards. See, there was the fruit that went to market, and then there were seconds that you could, you know, sell off and use for pies or whatever. I don't, I don't really know what you use seconds for. And then there's like the, the, the junk fruit that you could even sell for commercial grade puree and that kind of stuff. And then there's the discard, right? The discard pile is filled with fruit that is so rotten and spoiled and infested with bugs and crawling with worms or whatever. It is so of such poor quality that it has no value. It can contribute. There's no positive use for a discard piece of fruit. The only possible outcome, if somebody were to eat that fruit, is that they would themselves would become ill. It would have detrimental effect. And Paul says some of the talk that can, comes out of our mouths are like pieces of rotten fruit. The example he uses in the text is lying, being deceitful, as opposed to speaking the truth and encasing it in love. Which is more likely to come out of your mouth? The deception of exaggeration or, or, or white lies or flattery, the lie that makes the conflict go away. What, what's more likely to come out of your mouth, that kind of deceit or the truth encased in love? What do your words tell you about how for or against you are with Christ? Paul talks about words that build others up. Do your words build others up or do, do your words tear others down? The sarcasm and uh, criticism, 
gossip and slander? What's more likely to come out of your mouth? Do your words build others up or do your words build yourself up? Bragging and boasting and just self-centered conversation that always just makes sure that everything comes back to you. Paul talks about words that benefit those who listen. Are your words a benefit? Are people better human beings because they've listened to what you have to say or is, or is it mostly small talk or inappropriate talk or stupid talk? The kind of stuff that fills most of my news feed on Facebook. The stuff that has no value, that contributes nothing of any purpose. Just, you know, rantings about opinions and cynicism and just... Stuff that doesn't help anybody. Paul says, none of that. Instead, he says, uh, only what is helpful. That's actually the same word as what Jesus used when he talks about something that's good. Only what is helpful to people. The fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in your life ought to manifest itself in the way that you speak. Paul tells us about the fruit of the Spirit, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Are your words loving? Do they communicate unequivocally to everybody who's listening that you love those that you are speaking to and those that you are speaking about? Are your words joy-filled? Do they give you joy? Do they express your joy? Do they fill other people with joy? Are your words peaceful? Do they make peace and bring peace into situations of conflict and chaos and turmoil and anxiety and fear? Do your words create peace in people's lives? Are your words patient? Are they stubbornly generous no matter how difficult the circumstance or the person or the relationship? Are they kind? Are they just a gift to everybody who hears them. Are your words good? Are they helpful or constructive in building other people up? Are they faithful? Do your words communicate to everybody who can hear you that you are for everybody you're talking to and you are for everyone you're talking about, that you are committed to participating in the well-being of their spirit? Are your words gentle? Do you speak intentionally attempting to avoid hurting anyone with what you say? Are your words evidence of self-control? Do you control your mouth or does your mouth control you? Do you fly off the handle and say, well, I couldn't help it? I want us to spend just a minute or two allowing God to to put his finger on some things in our lives, some things in the way that we speak. And so in a second on the screen, there's, there's gonna be a, a slide with all of these words that I have been talking about. And I just want you to spend just a minute in the quiet before God, asking God to point out in the patterns of your speech anything that he would want to draw your attention to. And then we'll pick it up in just a minute. Take a minute and sit in the quiet with God. And ask God to reveal what he wants to share with your heart.
Search us, O oh God, and know our hearts and point out any offensive way in us. What do your words reveal about whether you are for or against the purposes of Christ? I want to get the bands to come back to the stage as we uh, move towards the close and just sit in this minute and realize that these things that we've been talking about, about how we speak, these are the ways that you will incontrovertibly know whether you are for or against Christ. These are the ways in which others will incontrovertibly know whether you are for or against Christ. These are the ways in which God will know whether you are for or against Christ. In verse 36, Jesus finishes by saying this, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. It's a terrifying verse for someone like me who gets paid by the word. Um, Jesus says every empty word that you've spoken, every word that has served no positive purpose, every word that has accomplished nothing good for the sake of the kingdom, every word that has not generated peace and justice and abundance and harmony are words that we will have to give an account to God for. It is by our words, in part, that God will measure whether we were for or against Christ because our words are the truest indicators of the things we value in our soul. They are the truest way or one of the truest ways to know what a person is genuinely all about. And at the end of our lives when we stand before God, this is one of the places that he's going to stick the thermometer to measure our spiritual health is to ask us about the words that we spoke. To be frank, people all around us all the time are already evaluating us and acquitting us or condemning us based on the words that we speak. I mean, just based on the kinds of ways in which you talk, what would your family say about the health of your soul, your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your kids? What, just based entirely on the way that you speak, what would your family say about the health of your soul? What would your friends say? Just listening to the words that you speak, what would your friends say? about your devotion to following Jesus? What would your coworkers or your classmates say about your faith just only based on what they hear you say? By our words will be, we be acquitted or condemned because our words are the indicator of what's going on in our hearts. See, the point this morning is not that we would leave here and all white-knuckle it and grit our teeth and, and compel ourselves by sheer force of will to speak better words. That's not the point. You, 
the point is not to change the fruit. Jesus says, if you change the tree, the fruit will be good. The point is that we would leave here this morning begging the Holy Spirit to change our hearts in the ways that he identified before. The, the point is that we would leave here committed to learning of Jesus, learning to know Jesus so that we can follow in Jesus and we can love what Jesus loves and have that manifest itself in the way that we speak. The point is that we would leave here fully committed to loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength so that the soul will be restored and as the tree becomes good, the words become beautiful and then everyone will see that we are for and not against Christ. I want you to stand with me and pray this final prayer together with me. It'll be on the screen. Let's pray, pray together. Unless my heart is clean, O Lord, my words cannot be clean. For you have taught that those things which proceed out of the mouth originate in the heart and are able to defile us. Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Help me to keep my heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. Thank you for pouring out your love in my heart by the Holy Spirit. Fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen.